Conversations bring together the biggest names in true crime, recorded live at CrimeCon 2022, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk. Hello listeners, I'm talking to you from CrimeCon in Glasgow. I'm your speaker Casey and I can't tell you how excited I am for the opportunity to record live again at the UK's biggest true crime event. Thank you for everyone involved in making this opportunity possible and for inviting me back to showcase my podcast, The Cult Vault, in such esteemed company. And speaking of esteemed company, I'm even more excited to be joined for today's conversation by none other than former Detective Chief Inspector and Senior Investigating Officer in the Metropolitan Police, Colin Sutton. Hello, Colin. Hello, Casey. What a lovely introduction, eh? I'm so excited. Thank you for agreeing to take time out of your busy day today to chat with me. I know all of our local listeners will probably know who Colin Sutton is um, and a lot of people outside of the UK. But for those who aren't sure, Colin, would you like to start by introducing yourself to the listeners? Yeah, I I can try. Colin Sutton, I was a police officer in uh, mostly in London for 30 years, not a second more. Um, but for the last uh, nine years of that, I was uh, leading one of the murder teams in London and um, had the the misfortune, it seemed at the time, but the good fortune in the end to have two sort of pretty high profile cases before I finished um, of Levi Belfield and Delroy Grant. And so now I kind of tell stories, really. On, on television all and those write things and things like that yeah and they are very very interesting things that you discuss on on the tv shows and and the various guest appearances that you make and you said that you were in the metropolitan police for 30 years but only nine of those years were spent on the murder team uh yeah the last nine years i was a dci on the murder team so i'd, I'd worked on murders as a di as sort of deputy right. uh leader um before that as well um, I spent some time as the head of intelligence in, in West Yorkshire as well, which was a fascinating job doing sort of covert policing. Um, okay. so, so I had a, a pretty sort of varied career, but but the last nine years, I, yeah, doing doing the murders and investigating a serious crime like that was just felt what I was born for, really. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was my niche and I found it and I stayed in it. You found your niche 21 years into the force. Yeah, took so a bit how, of time. So where did you, what, what role did you start in? Like everybody in those days, I started as a uniform PC walking the beat. I was at Tottenham in North London uh, and uh, it was quite a culture shock really from, you know, I'd been to a half decent school and growing up in a sort of quite quiet and nice part of London and uh, six miles down the road, I'm wandering around the Bullwater Farm Estate in 1981 thinking, what the hell have I done? Um, and and it was yeah it was it was a it's a baptism of fire in one sense and literally I suppose in in some some instances but um, it was the sort of place I guess where you you sink or swim and I kind of took to policing and and uh, somehow accidentally became a detective it wasn't any great uh, ambition of mine to be a detective when I started in fact my my father was a was a traffic cop. And they don't normally get on with detectives, and he didn't. And he kind of tried to dissuade me from from that. But I couldn't be a traffic cop because I had a motorcycle, and it scared me to dip bits. And I, I could never have done that for work, so I had to find something else. <laughs> and your son is now in the force as well. Yeah, my son is uh, is a sergeant on the response team in South West London. Yeah. Wow. So it's it really like a 
familial thing. Yeah, and my great-grandfather was a PC at Tottenham as well. So it's four out of five generations, yeah. That's pretty significant. Yeah, it's, it's in the blood. It's a family business, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, it's a household yeah. name. It's yeah. a household name. And so what year did you officially retire? Uh, 2011. So I've been retired for 11 years now. It doesn't feel like two thousand. Two thousand and eleven was like five years ago. It wasn't. It wasn't that no. long ago. <laughs> yeah. And do you still get asked to come in and consult on cases, or? or? No, it, it doesn't really happen like that. I I do, I do some training days, um, mostly really for forces other than the Met. Uh, I do one or two for the Met, but not not kind of officially f- sanctioned from the centre. You know, it's it's kind of individual branches or divisions of the Met who know me will ask me to come in and talk to their right. officers on a training day and I do it and I you know I'm, I'm grateful and glad to do it and um, I've got the utmost admiration for those who still do the job now because it's far more difficult you know than it ever was yeah. in, in my day and, and police have never been under so much scrutiny and so much pressure and had so few resources to deal with the things they have to deal with so um, you know I take my hat off to to all of them um, but no it's it's a bit funny like that. Once you're gone, you're gone, really, you know. That surprises me. I mean, you've, you, you've had so much experience in working on such notable cases that when there is a prolific criminal, I'm surprised you're not one of the first people they call to come and advise on no, things. It's, uh, it's, and I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe, you know, if I put myself back in that position, if I'd have... I'd have been, you know, when I got, say, the Levi Belfield investigation, if somebody said, oh, well, there's this old old bloke who retired five years ago and we want him to help you, I wouldn't have taken very kindly to that, no. to be honest. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it's the best thing to do is to move on. You know, I started, when I when I first retired, um, I, I was doing some sort of commentary stroke punditry work for, for news organisations. And I did that for a few years. Um, but I kind of thought, well, you know, we got to about five years. There's five more years of people who have retired who are more current than me. And I don't want to be that guy who's sort of this embittered old ex-cop who's left 20 years ago and is still banging the table and ranting about... I don't think anybody do. would ever describe uh, you as that type of person. Well, I just don't want to be that, you know. So, And it's, it's lucky because of doing, you know, bits of writing and things and how things have worked out that I've I've been able to kind of stay within the field and, and take part in this amazing sort of burgeoning, ever ever increasing true crime community. And to do that, but to do that from a position where I don't have to look silly by talking about things I don't know about, <laughs> I suppose. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm much more comfortable doing what I do now than, than going right. back onto TV and talking about, you know, being wise after the event to things that have happened. Mm. Um, it's, it's always really difficult to, to second guess. You know, I, 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 I inhabit that, that sewer of the world called Twitter sometimes and, and the things that go on and are talked about when notable things happen. Um, and, of course, everyone's a, everyone's a news gatherer now, aren't they? Everyone's got a yeah, phone and a yeah. camera in their pocket. And you see little clips of videos and people saying, oh, God, that policing's awful. And, that. And, and, you know, I just think, well, you can't, you can't make a judgment on 30 seconds of video. You can't second-guess somebody who's been there in that situation who are fearful for their safety or even their life and what they've done and how they've reacted to it you can't second guess that you know and, and, or even the pre-events before the recording yeah exactly what's place. led up to it yeah, yeah absolutely because people tend not to get their phone out and switch the video on until it gets real so yeah it, it's you know I'd, I'd rather not 
do that sort of thing. I'd, I, I want to try and be supportive. And I, I've, I've had the chance through what I do with, with the documentaries now, with Revelation, that, you know, we've, 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 we've created this sort of brand, if you like, of The Real Manhunter, which I find wholly embarrassing, but it kind of works as a title. Um, but in that, what we do is we talk to people who are involved, people who've got skin in the game, I suppose, you know, that were actually there. They're either witnesses or they were victims or they were officers investigating it. We don't do the sort of talking head TV. Um, and we focus on the investigation and we focus on the victims. We don't focus on the perpetrators. Which I noticed, actually, when I was watching The Real Manhunter was that the episode titles are named after the victims as opposed to the yeah. the, the people that committed the crimes, which yeah. I thought was a, a, a respectful touch on that. And that leads me really nicely into my next question, which was to ask you what you've been up to since retiring. So we've mentioned The Real Manhunter, which is... a um, currently uh, a two series documentary which is available on sky i've been watching it through now tv what other projects have you been involved in where you've shared your knowledge and expertise well i guess i mean the whole thing started off really because i started writing a book about the belfield investigation and i did that because i just i was so in awe of the people that i had the the honor to to lead and what they'd done and and the 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 talent and the effort and the persistence that they put into it. I wanted it recorded. I wanted it written down somewhere and was conscious that the books that are going to be written about it will be about him and about, you know, the mm -hmm. psychology of this serial killer and this awful man. And I wanted to, to kind of record what that was like from the other side and what it was like to be the people that were investigating it. And, and so I started doing that. And as a result of that, you know, it's a long story that I'll cut short and I, I've told before anyway, but, um, I got involved with a guy called Ed Whitmore who, who I've become great friends with who, who's a screenwriter and he encouraged me and made me finish the book and then helped sell it to to um, to a production company and we ended up with Manhunt, the, the drama with, with Martin Clunes and um, we set out to create the most authentic drama about policing murder in London that we could and they were wholly, you know, Buffalo, the producers, were wholly indulgent of me and let me have all the, you know, just silly things that I wanted to do, you know, where, for example, there's, there's a scene in one where, 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 where we had somebody walking through with a tray of coffees, which is fine, but I, they allowed me to change it so that actually it wasn't a tray with China cups, it was the lid of a photocopier paper box with styrofoam cups in because that's how we served coffee in the instant room. And it's it's the kind of thing that only those who know would know and would notice. But it was just that kind of attention to detail and to reality. Because I always said that if, look, you know, I go to a party or something like that, and the two things people would ask me always when I was in the police was they'd either talk to me about their latest speeding ticket, which I could do very little <laughs> about, um, or they'd say, "Do have you watched, insert the name of the latest TV cop drama here, is it really like that? And what I said to Buffalo when we were sort of scoping out was if if cops who are asked that question can say, yes, it's absolutely like that, then kudos to us, you know, yeah. for, for, for doing what we did. And they allowed us to do that. And, and in both series of, of Manhunt, we, we, you know, we, we did that. And, and the, the feedback that I've got from people um, in the police or who've been in the police as to how authentic we made it um, 
yeah, it was it was it was really gratifying to to find that people felt that way. But also, you know, nine million people can't be wrong, and each each of those was watched by nine, nine million people. Wow, um, so that's amazing. Oh, it's just you know, it just uh, yeah. and, and then we got nominated for a BAFTA with the last one for best drama. We didn't win it, but just to be nominated, who who would ever have thought, you know, that I um, that that's where it end up. So it's just it's just been this sort of wave that I've been rolling in that sense and then that led to doing the doing the documentaries and doing the documentaries has been I say really powerful for me because it's enabled me to I think to position something in this true crime market which is different to the others um, and Revelation the production company for that just so again so helpful with me and let me talk to them and let me kind of have ideas um, and so we've done that. We've, we're doing a third series of the Real Manhunter that we'll start filming um, towards the end of the year. But before that, we've got we've just finished filming a four-part documentary about some old murders in the nineteen seventies, and we're doing a, a, another four-part um, series uh, on on Levi Belfield, actually, but on the side of Levi Belfield that nobody knows about. So not the murders and that he's infamous for, but other aspects of his life and other things that he claims to have done. And uh, other people claim dumb, and and I think it's going to be pretty powerful. And I think people are going to be pretty shocked by, you know, we all know who he is and what he's like, and we all think he's just one of the most vile, horrible, dangerous people in in a British prison. But that only scratches the surface of well, what we know about him. So plenty to keep you busy. Mm. You're not slowing down anytime soon. You're going to continue sharing everything that yeah. you know. When it's not like working, though, is it? You know, it's I suppose you, what you said earlier kind of rings true with that, though. It keeps you current. It keeps you up to date with yeah. things that are changing in the force, things that are changing yeah. with laws in the country, which is something that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about later on as well. So that, that ties in nicely mm. with everything. And it was an episode of The Real Manhunter that inspired my conversation with you today. Yeah. So season two, episode one is titled Sally Lawrence. And I wondered if you could give us a brief summary of the case. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting. In the second series, because I was, I was running out of cases, although I did, you know, 30-odd uh, cases as a senior investigating officer and probably was on 50 more or more murders overall, a lot of those don't have the message, don't have the investigation, don't have... The the, the, the the features that would make them a good TV programme. So I was running out and said, Scarlett, we can probably do two series. They said, well, what about looking at other people's cases? And I said, well, I'm not really sure about that because, I, you know, I feel a bit bad. But we kind of decided that if we kept the same sort of values of only using people who were involved and, and, and trying to focus on the investigation and the effect on the victims, then it might work with talking to those people and... and so yeah, having said we don't have talking heads, I guess I've in some ways ended up the talking head, but I'm trying to kind of elicit the same sort of things from other people. So in the second series, I said, well, let's try and do three or four of those cases and see how they run. From a TV point of view, it's worked because the same number of people watch those programmes and those mm -hmm. episodes as watch the ones that were my cases. So, you know, that's quite good. And that means we can go on and do other series with me talking to people about their cases. Um, so Sarah, Sarah Lawrence was one of those, and she was a um, a businesswoman. She had a good job, nice car, and she was remarried to a um, a pilot. And um, they, they they both had a quite a quick romance, and things had fallen apart. And she wanted to leave, and I think she'd found she had found someone else. And he knew this, and uh, he essentially staged a road accident to murder her. He uh, 
made her go in his old car and he disabled the airbag and flicked her seatbelt off at the last minute and drove into a tree. He himself as the driver at 50 miles an hour as well, it, yeah. it head first collision into a tree. Mm. Yeah. So there were so many things when I watched that episode that I was relating back to the potential for domestic violence situation within the Lawrence household. Yeah. And I was looking at ways that I could link my knowledge and your knowledge together. So despite the tragic death of Sally Lawrence and the lasting impact that that must have on her surviving family, friends and her children, there were many parts of the episode that stood out in terms of recognisable traits seen in cults and coercion. And you retired in 2011. Yep. And on December the 29th, 2015, Section 76 of the Serious Crime Act was updated to include the coercive or controlling behaviour offence, which only extends at the moment to acts committed within intimate partnerships or family relationships. Despite being retired, do you remember this being added? to Yes. This? Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I do because um, it's an area of, of, of offending that, that, you know, as a, as, a, as a murder detective, you have to be very aware of because a number of the, the cases which you deal with or are likely to deal with will be within the family or within a, 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 a relationship. Um, so you need to be aware of it. And also, just going back over my time as like a divisional crime manager DCI before I was on the murder squads, uh, when, when I worked in West Yorkshire, one of the things that I was keen for us to do was to try to uh, to, 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 to institute a process where we gave better support for victims of domestic violence. Right. Yeah, uh, in a, so we were doing like a repeat victimisation scheme at the time for burglaries, for domestic burglaries, to stop people becoming re-victimised. Okay. Um, and I tried to apply those principles to domestic violence. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and because we knew, and the stats were telling us, that that domestic violence is not often a one-off occurrence. No, and cult hopping is a phenomenon that happens with individuals that have been involved in coercive environments to fall very easily back into something that maybe feels familiar or somewhat comfortable um, in in that way. So that's interesting. Yeah, there's certainly many. So, yeah, so I was was aware of of that. And, and yeah, it's, it's remarkable how how many victims of coercive behaviour or violent behaviour in a relationship setting are serial victims with different offenders, different cults, if you like, each time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, whether there's a... You can't say you've got a predisposition to being a domestic violence victim. No. But you might have a predisposition to being in a... Rela- taking a part in a relationship that comes up with a certain sort of person or something like that. Looking at the Sally Lawrence case and coercive or controlling behaviour offence. I just had a little bit of context that I wanted to add to the listeners to 
be able to really look at this in depth. So mm. I will just read this paragraph okay. uh, before we get into discussing the cult-like aspects of the case of Sally Lawrence. Leading cult experts in the field of cultic studies, education and recovery have been working for years to put a spotlight on the different types of cultic environments that we might be able to identify. For example, Dr. Yanya Lalich has researched a ton of material on one-on-one cults and family cults and published some reports and papers. And Dr. Alexandra Stain has recently been part of a study that took place with the Family Survival Trust. And the results of that report, which were published, show us that there is an epidemic of cults within the UK, with an estimated 2,000 active destructive cults and environments existing can be identified, which makes me worry about the ones that we don't know about Mm. and, and cannot identify in the UK alone. And within that survey, 105 victims of 36 different cults found that thousands of people have suffered sexual abuse, isolation from friends and family, financial exploitation and modern slavery at the hands of UK cults. Dr Stain has called for action to take place around the coercive or controlling behaviour offence to extend to groups and movements, workplaces and organisations, stating that only allowing this law to be applied to intimate partnerships and family relationships means that thousands of people will continue to be abused and exploited. The Harassment and Stalking Act came into fruition in 1997, so it's surprising that it took so long to bring an act around coercion into law. The Crown Prosecution Service offers this insight into how the law was recognising coercive or controlling behaviour. In September 2012, the government published guidance which may assist prosecutors to better understand the nature and features of controlling or coercive behaviour. And domestic violence and abuse is defined as... Any incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive or threatening behaviour, violence or abuse between those aged 16 or over who are or have been intimate partners or family members regardless of gender or sexuality. This can encompass but is not limited to the following types of abuse, psychological, physical, sexual, financial and emotional. So with all of that information, although it was long-winded, I want to ask you a few of your opinions on some of the cases you've worked on. And we touched on Sally Lawrence, and even though it wasn't one of your cases, I wondered if you had any thoughts on her estrangement to her husband, Ian Lawrence, because she mentioned to her one of her daughters that she feared for her life. Mm-hmm. The relationship had broken down within the household, and, and you mentioned yourself in The Real Manhunter that they were living two separate lives under the same roof. Yeah. And she remained in that home despite her worries for around six months or so. And I wondered if you had any insight or indication on why she didn't leave if she feared so much for her life. I think I think it's common, sadly, that the more you have, the more comfortable your life, the more nicer your house, the more children you have, the more possessions you have, the harder it is to leave. Mm. Um, you know, if if you've got nothing, then walking out the door with nothing is easier. And 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 I think we see this where 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 the the prospect of losing the lifestyle or the trappings of your life are a bigger draw than the fear of of being controlled or being abused. And that in itself is a form of control. Ultimately. What we were trying to do with this scheme I talked about in Yorkshire was to make it easy for women, mostly women it was, uh, who 
just felt they didn't have the means, they didn't have the wherewithal, they didn't have the support wrapped around them to be able to leave this abusive relationship. Right. And providing, so, so for example, what we were doing was we, we, we started this sort of process of saying, we are going to arrest, we are going to keep in custody, we're going to put before the court. So that gives you some breathing space. That gives you two or three days when he's out of the house and he can't be there. During that time, we got sponsored mobile, pay-as-you-go mobile phones given to us. We lined up solicitors who specialised and wanted to do the work to, to get injunctions and so forth. Um, and so that in that time, that space that we could create by arresting, charging and keeping in custody, in the background we could then put the... The, the situation in place to try and solve these problems that were stopping uh, the, the escape. Now, that kind of worked, and it kind of worked in situations where we had, you know, we had two large sort of social housing estates on the division, and, and they were the source of quite a lot of our of our domestic violence reports. And it was, you know, where am I going to live? Where am I? Going? So we had to involve housing, and, and uh, I think the pressure on housing. I'm talking now about the, the late 1990s, so the pressure on housing were far less than they are at the moment and it was possible to organise through the local authority or housing association somewhere to go mm. you know and it's not it's not the situation where you're going to a, a, a refuge where you're kind of living in effectively bed sit shared bathroom conditions with two children and you know nobody wants to do that you yeah. can understand mm-hmm. where you think well if that's my choice if that's the only option I have then I'd rather yeah I'd rather stay and tough it out so that was what we were trying to do there. But but as I say, once you get to kind of, for want of a better word, sort of middle class people, mm-hmm. as, as as in the Lawrence case, then although they might have had, she might have had the financial means to go and book into a hotel or to rent somewhere to live or, or, or whatever, the maybe the kind of the jump from this, you know, I've been, I saw the house when we were filming it, so it's a nice sort of solid 30s big house. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and then, of course, you've got children involved and you've got, children and you've got the, 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 the father of the children is there um, and then moving away means changing schools for that and there's just all these literally hundreds of practical difficulties that you can understand as people weigh them up yep. and think well no I just can't do it I can't I can't manage it I'd rather I'd rather take the risk and that was what all those years ago we were trying to address and I guess, you know, we had some success with it and then as it's always the same in policing, I move on and do something else and, and, and it's picked up and money runs out and support runs out. I don't know what happened to it. But, you know, we, we're still, we're better, I'm sure, nationally at how we deal with, mm-hmm. with domestic abuse and, and coercive control. Yeah. But Well, introducing that there. law in 2015, yeah. although it's such a difficult thing to prove, it's yeah. imperative that it exists and that hopefully it's recognized that it needs to be extended to groups and movements to protect people yeah. that are being manipulated and coerced yeah. but it's fascinating for me to hear from your perspective and experience the things that are identified in insular cult communities where people are restricted from the outside world they have their money taken away from them their passports yeah. their means of escape sometimes individuals critical thinking suffers the dependency on the abuser or the leader grows so people struggle to make their own independent decisions and that those two days that you spoke about where you get breathing space for the victim and separation from the abuser may introduce uh, also a bit of the ability for critical thinking to come back and a bit of rest and a bit of of time away from feeling constantly in fear of the person that's harming you so even in that case without offering 
people the physical things in terms of housing and money just that space to breathe and think and get a good night's sleep can be the difference between somebody staying in that abusive environment and being able to critically remove themselves from that as well so it's really interesting for yeah. me to hear I, I can remember I mean that was really the cornerstone of, of, of the strategy what I wanted to do and I remember um because I'm a great one for kind of analogies, I suppose. And at the time, probably still, I don't know, but you do the officer safety training in for, 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 for physical safety for police officers. And one of the things you're taught is to give yourself distance. So you've got this business of doing a, a strike in the chest to push someone away to create that distance because it's safer. I said, that's what we need to do with these victims. Yeah, oh my goodness. But we need to do it in time rather than in, yep. in actual yep. spatial yep. distance. And that's why a lot of the time, I suppose, you see victims of domestic violence return to those abusive relationships even once they've managed to to walk away. Mm. Um, the dependency level, the sunk yeah. cost fallacy with you know the children, all of the things that you mentioned. Who knows what was happening between Sally and Ian behind closed doors, really? Yeah what conversations were taking place in terms of emotional abuse. Yeah. The house was hers before they got married yes. and he was demanding all of it and then mm. half of it and then all of it again. Um, so perhaps Sally didn't want to walk away and, and leave him with everything when it was rightfully hers to begin mm. with. We'll, we'll never really know, but I think there are some indications around Ian Lawrence's personality. He, he was a charismatic man he was able to be charming he had this very high-flying personal life and social life and he was doing really well with his job as as a as a pilot and then it all kind of came away yeah from him and we see historically that when leaders and abusers of power no longer have that complete control over individuals they lose control and they will go to extreme lengths to to try and maintain that power or to try and take that power back um we've seen it with the branch davidians with david koresh we saw it with jim jones and the people's temple and i'm not saying that they are the same i'm saying that there could be similarities between ian lawrence's reckless endangerment of his own life yeah. in that vehicle Oh yeah, it was a high, it was a high risk strategy, high stakes game he was playing, and you know people have said he was a pilot and he was used to sort of the idea of assuming the crest position, and 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 indeed, you know we spoke again, and I keep on about this being a strength of what we do in the programs, but we we got we actually spoke to the member of the public who was the first person on the scene after the crash. Yes, you know, and he said, and also the the paramedics and the emergency services that attended said, well, he 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 was looks almost as if he was in the brace position, you know? Yes, and feigning Which, course, consciousness, a, yeah, in yeah, and out of yeah. consciousness. But as a pilot, of course, he'd, he'd be quite well-versed and, 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 and well-trained, presumably, in, in, in that. And so he's, you know, he's obviously decided that it's worth the risk, that he can pull this off, that he can do this. Um, and the amount of, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever tried... Why would you? If you've ever tried deliberately to ram a car into something, I, I happen to have done that because I've had to do that. It's a really hard thing to do. It's you know to try and keep your foot there, not put your foot on the brake. Um, so, so it's I think that the psychology of him in, in 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 deciding this was the best way that he could murder his wife and get away with it. Um, it's a really 
yeah, really host. But isn't there an arrogance with yes, people? Like with people almost that, like a god complex. Uh, yeah, sort of. You know, yeah. I can do this. I can. I can. You got this. You got this, Ian. You can do this. You're. You're. You're invincible. You know. Um, so there's an arrogance here, which I think is, and you know far more about cults than I do. But I'm sure that that's a common feature of people who are leading cults or cultish yeah, behaviour. Absolutely, absolutely. It just felt to me watching the documentary that after it was apparent to Ian Lawrence that he was not going to maintain that power. He was not going to get all of the things that he was demanding from Sally Lawrence Mm. and that she was going to divorce him either way. He went to the extreme lengths that he went to out of sheer despair almost. Yeah, desperation, but but I'm sure. Um, But you can... I say there's a there's a you know desperate times demand desperate measures, but there's an always going to be an element of weighing up the risks and of of deciding what the probabilities of a good outcome are or whatever. Yeah. And I think that your thinking on that um, must be kind of you know clouded by your determination or your desperation. But again, he's a pilot, and you know. Pilots are trained and expect dangerous situations might occur, and that they that they have a chance of surviving them. You know that that would be part of what they do. Um, um, and so, does that make him more likely to think he can get away with running mm-hmm. a car into a tree and killing his wife and surviving than it would do you or I? Because we just think no trees are big and they don't move, and cars fold up, and it's going to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. He spends his life, his working life. Um, however many hundred or thousand feet off the ground in a machine that could crash and has to have the confidence that he could survive that crash if it happened or he might survive it. So you can kind of see how that thinking is probably Mm -hmm. relative to his training and his profession. But I I think the, you know, I I, I always, unfortunately, always keep thinking back to Levi Belfield and, and... he, you know, he's just got so many, and I'd never thought of it until we spoke. I'd never thought of it as him being a cult. But mm-hmm. th- there's a question of of the way in which he treated his uh, partners that he lived with, and there were a number of them. Actually, a surprisingly high number of them. The number of statements I read that started um, in such and such a time. I had a short relationship with Levi Belford, and you know, we were kind of looking and thinking, how, why? Because he was charming, because he was able to talk he had the gift of the gap mm-hmm. and he could mm-hmm. if he was dealing with the right individuals uh, who were susceptible to his particular brand of charm then he he could do that so he, he had a string of of kind of partners relationships um and some of those reported the most horrible frightening shocking abuse that i think i've ever heard of you know when you talk to one of his one of his partners who says that after an argument, she was stripped naked and sat on a kitchen stool and told that he would kill her if she moved. And he came back eight hours later and she'd sat there and she'd wet herself on a couple of occasions because she was too scared to get off of that. Well, yeah. that's his f- fully exercising his power of control oh. over an individual to see how loyal a person will be to his instructions, I imagine. Like it it didn't dog. start that way with their relationship. Probably no. quite charming and oh, over time. It's, 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 it's amazing. So, okay, this is how it went. You meet him, he's charming, he charms you, he buys you flowers and chocolates and things, and, you know, t- you have a laugh, he's funny, you have a good time. 
And then at the third date or something, it's give me your mobile phone. There you go. Right, he gives you a mobile phone. That's your mobile phone now. Yeah, but all my old numbers are in that one. No, you don't need those numbers. My number's in the one I've given you. That's your phone now. That's the only number you need. We heard a, 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 a telephone call he made from prison to one of his... He had a, a girlfriend, um, not the woman he lived with, a, a younger, a 16-year-old, actually. And he was talking to her from prison on recorded call. And he didn't believe her that she was at her parents' house. He said, no, you're out with some bloke. I you know, named him. Um, was in a racist way described him but then that was him because he's thoroughly horrible in all sorts of ways and she said no no no, I'm not leaving I'm at my mum's I'm at my mum's house and he he said right this is what you need to do he said take the phone walk upstairs hold your phone over the toilet and flush it because I know the noise your parents toilet makes when it flushes my goodness and that will prove to me you're at home at your parents house and she went and did it this is a guy who's locked up on remand in prison over the phone, and yet he's still able to make somebody do something as bizarre as that. It makes me wonder, and I know that we've run over. Um, I'm, I'm just kind Are of going to pick your, okay. your your brains about this this one little thing. Cases that you've come across in in your career history, mm. when there wasn't a law around coercive and controlling yeah. behaviour, where partners have provided alibis, have hidden evidence, have gone to lengths to protect their potential abuser, or where family environments, kids have been, children have been coached into saying, partners have been coached into saying certain things. Do you feel like there are cases you can identify where the coercive act would have helped you in those times? Oh, I'm sure, because, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and... Almost literally too many cases to name or to, to imagine where where these things have been have been given up and and you know in many cases I couldn't really name them because we may not have actually proved that was the case but we've known that that's the case you know I, I, one example I can think of is a a rape investigation where it was only because the victim's sister off the record asked to meet me and I met her in a pub and she told me what had happened and actually this woman was um, running heroin for her partner they'd been together with some time he was a drug dealer and she was moving drugs for him Mm -hmm. by secreting him inside her body oh gosh okay and then a rival drug gang knew that's how he moved his drugs so they intercepted her and stole the drugs from her and because of they'd beaten her and she was unconscious and they'd caused various injuries to her, and I can't go too much detail, she made a credible allegation that she'd been raped by a stranger. And we investigated it with the full team and all we could. And it was only because her sister thought, the police are wasting their time here. So she confidentially got in touch with me and I met her and she said, no, this is what happened. Wow. She was never raped. She was just had drugs stolen from her. Wow. So she was willing... To do that and to go that to those things, so it's not just creating an alibi. This is creating a fictional mm-hmm. victimization of herself as as a rape victim. Do you feel like your four part series around Levi Belfield will look into some of that coercive yeah. behaviour of his? Absolutely will. Well, that would be really absolutely will because I think there's you know, as I say, he, he he's a man that is well known for killing people, and that's shocking and despicable enough as it is. But there are scores more victims who survived, 
who have suffered abuse, mm-hmm. either mental or physical abuse, at his hands. And 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 uh, I think it's it's right to let the world know what he's really like. Absolutely. I think it's also really important to highlight those types of, of, of coercive methods mm. that viewers might be able to identify with their own situations, with yeah. family members or loved ones, and just I- identify those systems that abusers have put in place. Mm. And uh, and, and it, so it's it's educational as, as well as, you know, putting a spotlight on oh, it is. a monster. I mean, and, and, and I think... One of the ways, one one of the things I think that it will raise a question that, that, that is, is a is a thing to consider is had that partner who was sitting on the kitchen stool naked for eight hours had the partner that was locked in the house and had to let her mother in by throwing a key from upstairs because she couldn't unlock the door from the inside. What if those partners had had access to this legislation? Mm-hmm. Might Levi Belfield have ended up? being convicted of things before he got to murder. And and that was the whole point of today's conversation. I just got, I have not, I'm not very good at articulating my thoughts, but you've just said it like really eloquently in one sentence. So thank That's you right. so much for that. And thank you so much for your time. It's really interesting for me to pull everything together in terms of the different cultic environments that exist in the world we've covered the armed forces with high demand control systems in place we've looked at multi-level marketing we've looked at gang culture and now looking at the types of cases that the police might might be involved with that link directly to cult-like environments have we looked at the true crime community i know i have (laughs) should probably i should probably end the recording here I will just sign off before before I do that. So thank you so, so much for all of your time and your willingness so to give your insights and experience to the rest of us so that we can continue learning and carry your legacy on for you. I hope so. I'm not going anywhere just yet, I hope, anyway. I know I look a bit peaky, but... Thank you very much, Colin. Take Brilliant. care. Okay, cheers. Thanks. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Crime Conversations, recorded live at CrimeCon 2022, partnered by CBS Reality. For more information on future CrimeCon events, visit crimecon.co.uk.